whenever somebody changes their heart, whenever they wake up to the reality of the fact that there's this one big ocean and we're all waves made of that ocean, then compassion comes quite naturally. Altruistic motivation comes quite naturally. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu back with Mind Rolling. And my guest today is Lama Tsomo. Lama, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Raghu. So happy to be here. And uh, we must thank our mutual friend, Duncan Trussell, for uh, introducing us. So, yeah. And since he's my podcast guru, I namaste to him. <laughs> Oh boy. So, um, well, the very first thing is, can we just find out a little bit about you and how you came up in this world? And most importantly, why in the world did you gravitate towards, I mean, Lama is obviously in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And uh, so how did you get there from a little guy to where you are now? Um. Well, as a little gal, um, when I was about to celebrate, I think it was my ninth birthday, um, I had a serious uh, problem to solve. Uh, the night before my birthday, I was like, okay, I have one wish when I blow out the candles. What's that wish going to be? And um, I really considered this long and hard because I'd read fairy tales. And in a lot of the fairy tales, they had three wishes and they still <laughs> screwed it up. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I've only got one wish. I'm probably going to screw it up. So I better really think about this. So I thought, well, you know, I'd wish for this. But then I thought, well, but that could go wrong in this way. You know, this other thing could go wrong in some other way. And so I thought, well, what is loophole free here? And so then I decided, actually, my bottom line is I want to be happy. So no matter what happens, if I'm happy, I'm good with that. So that was my wish. And really? ever since then, that's been, um, you know, pretty much that was my wish all the way until now. I more specifically wish for enlightenment. Um, but that comes to the same thing in my mind. Gee, so Barbie dolls? Yeah. What happened to Barbie dolls? Come on. I never, I wasn't you into never, dolls. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was actually president of the Tomboy Club oh, yeah. in, in kindergarten. Yes. Yeah. So, but what are the, you know, say advance a little bit teenagehood, what are the things yeah. that made you realize that there was a path potentially to be happy? Yeah, so um, I was fascinated by psychology uh, in high school. Mm. And like on a camping trip, I, I remember per being perched in a tree and reading a book on Freud. <laughs> and As shortly after that, 15. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> Nobody said I was normal. Anyway, then <laughs> shortly after that, I was reading Jung, and mm. that felt more mm. on on track for me, and I really appreciated that. Basically, I was on track for figuring out how could I be a better, happier person, and I wanted to help other people be better, happier people. Mm. That seemed, you know, like the best thing to do. So you can see the logical progression from nine to 15 to 
after that. Um, yeah, so I, I was looking for the methods. I figure I want to know how do you do this? And I started with the best of the West and then gravitated to Eastern methods. Hmm. Well, so that's the, just a really quick recap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but who in, in, who was that? I mean, to me, there's already always some catalyst, a person who represents a catalyst to moving into living your dharma, living mm-hmm. within what it is that you're supposed to be doing in this life. Who was that for you? Well, let me uh, start by sort of the approach till I actually met that person. Okay, right? good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in early in my adult years, I realized meditation would be a good thing. But I was living in the country, homesteading, and there was nobody to really take meditation from. And so I was just kind of sitting on the couch for 15 minutes a day, you know, between when my kids went to sleep and I was falling asleep and um, didn't feel like I was getting very far and then got discouraged and sort of gave up on it. And then I discovered after five years of not doing it, I realized what the benefit was because I kept coming to myself when I would sit with myself and turn the lens inward instead of always outward and reacting Mm. to outer things. And so I could hear that still small voice. I could uh, notice um, what was true for me and come back to myself again and again. And so then going through my day, all the thousands of decisions we make, all those little decisions that actually make up our path through life, I was more on track. And so when I stopped, I realized after five years, wow, I'm off track. And so mm. I actually need to learn how to meditate. But just like you go to a piano teacher when you want to learn how to play piano, I'm going to go to a meditation teacher and learn how to meditate. Mm. Um, so I sounded this note in the universe every day at meditation time, you know, kind of calling my teacher. And I didn't really care what brand they were, um, you know, Taoist, Zen. I, you know, I didn't really care. The main thing, you know, I, I actually made a list so I could be really clear in my mind. Um, you know, must not want to want me for my body, uh, must be well-educated. And, you know, I had the pros and cons all listed out. Hmm. And um, so then I started meeting lamas and various and Zen teachers and so on. I was, oh, Here and in the West, though. not In the West, yeah. So I was living in Boulder, Colorado hmm. by that time. And so it was kind of a great smorgasbord to meet lots of teachers, right? And Sharon Salzberg and um, Joseph Goldstein came and did a meditation retreat. And that was my first instruction in meditation. Couldn't be better so, as far as I'm concerned. That's absolutely right. <laughs> I yeah. was so lucky. <laughs> yeah. And from there, I progressed to Zen because that didn't feel quite it. So then I went to Zen and that was good, but that still didn't hit the spot for me. And then a a friend who lived nearby uh, brought in an American Lama who talked about Tibetan Buddhism. And um, the more he talked, the more it made sense to me. Hmm. And it just was clicking for me. Yeah. uh, Tuku Yeshe Nima was his name. He's Hmm. no longer alive. Uh, He was a student of Jaucho Rinpoche. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he brought over Tuku Sangak Rinpoche, 
We'll get to him in a minute. So I started doing the Lundro, which is the preliminary practices. And um, that's a set of five practices that are foundational in Tibetan Buddhism. And I was loving it. So I decided I'm going to try retreat because, you know, intensive learning, uh, if you want to change your brain, you know, seems like a good idea. So I went You had children when this was going on? Yes, but um, one silver lining to divorce is that sometimes they're with their dad. Oh, perfect. Yeah. (laughs) So I went, while they were with their dad, I went to his center and was able to um, do a 10-day retreat uh, working on the Lundro. Well, the next part of the Lundro that was due to, that I was due to practice was just coming up. And this llama pops into the center in like rural New Mexico, outside of Santa Fe, and is teaching the same practice that I was about to do in my next stage of the Mundro. And at that time, I did not get that he was my llama. But the next time I saw him was at my house. (laughs) So yeah, Tukuyashe Nima uh, no longer had a center. He needed teachings, and he asked if I would host him and this lama, Tukusanga Karipache. And uh, so I said, sure. And um, so the next time I meet him, he's on my doorstep, and, you know, he's staying for 10 days in my house giving teachings. So I was able to sit in on the teachings, and a few days into it, I realized, oh, this is my teacher. This is my lama. Mm. (laughs) It was a little slow. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I discovered uh, how I came upon my teacher. Wow. Is he still alive? He is. Wow. Yeah. And lives in India, I'm supposing? No, actually, he spends a lot of time in India, but in America, he uh, lives in Santa Fe, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. He was living in Montana for a while with his family and then moved to Santa Fe, Mm -hmm. but still spends time in Montana. Mm -hmm. So... Finally, you had a rudder, so to speak, that you totally trusted. And, you know, many people write to us and ask about, well, how do I find my guru? Interchangeable with, uh, you know, say, uh, an enlightened teacher. And I, mm-hmm. when I say enlightened, by the way, I have no idea. I met that being, which I wouldn't be qualified to know anything about the depth of, of which um, was was beyond me, except for the fact that I was shocked by the fact that I knew there was not a polarized thing going on in this human being. There was no mm-hmm. I and you. Mm-hmm. There was nothing like that going on. So it was more like a computer, kind of, is what my experience was at the time. Um, so, but yeah, so we get asked this question a lot, and of course we say, this will come to you as long as you have intention that is right intention as part of the Eightfold Path. That's and that right. seems and to be what I, happened. That's exactly what happened. That's well said. I uh, wanted uh, the two purposes. I wanted happiness and enlightenment for myself and for others. And I wanted to help others to do that. And, uh, you know, I wasn't in 
particularly great shape to do that at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Need a little work. So, um, you know, that is, so then I wrote that list and, Mm. you know, got my, uh, my lens very clear because I figured, you know, then if I sound the note, the, the note is clear and also my lens and being able to see when that the right person came along would be clear. Yeah. And I did forget one thing on the list. He, he was everything on the list that I wanted and none of the things that I didn't want, but I forgot to write must speak English. Uh, yeah. And yeah. He, he only manage, speaks Tibetan. Yeah. <laughs> well, most of them do have a translator, but not uh, while they're just hanging he, at your house, I guess. He didn't have a translator. He was very new to the West at that point, and nobody mm-hmm. knew about him. And, you know, that took a while. But it just so happened that uh, the person I think is really the best Tibetan English translator in the world happened to have a, a free space um, in his schedule at that time. So he came and translated. It was amazing. Really? Mm-hmm. I've always thought of uh, His Holiness as translator Jimpa. Oh, uh, yeah. As marvelous. Uh, oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, and what a wonderful human being. Yeah, incredible. Uh, uh, Chucky Nima, also known as Richard Barron, is, I think, a fantastic translator. So, Chucky Nima, that's one of Tulku Urgen's sons. So, different Chucky well, Nima, right? Different Chucky Nima. This yeah. fellow was born in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So, when Duncan introduced you to me by just saying, you know, I did this wonderful podcast, I then searched you. And one of the things that came up is uh, immediately was this talk that you gave. We, and we've discussed this offline. And in that talk, you started the talk. It just blew my mind. The whole talk started with... Now, we do every day, we are going through the movie of me. And those, you know, exact words. And uh, I was like, oh, Jesus, that's, I have been working on that with Duncan for years, talking about it on podcasts. And we, we're still working on a movie of me to the movie of we, basically, is the. Mm-hmm. Is the that's great. It's what you're doing. It's what you did in that. Yeah. And so I, I was then blown away, uh, of course, by the synchronicity of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But let, let us, and, and I have to give credit where credit's due, my friend Krishnadas, the chant guy, he, in his talks and hangouts, uh, brings this up a lot. You wake up in the morning and you are uh, with the movie of me, and it's 24-7, goes on and on. And it's you're the protagonist, you're the writer, you're the director, you're the exactly, producer. Exactly, I talk the same way. I know. He, I know. So when I heard that, I was like, Jesus. And I know, uh, you, I don't even know if you know who Krishnadas is, actually. I, I you know do the know name, who he is. I've, I've never heard him speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he um, more chants than, he does give workshops and so on, and he does speak. But uh, anyhow, it was so exactly the same. It just was really, oh, Boy, uh, well, and but, let's unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, that's what to. I want you to do. All right, because um, what occurred to me when I thought about that was, was a couple of things. First of all, we don't realize 
that we're the author, right? That we're writing completely the movie. not. <laughs> yeah, it's how real. Good is that gonna, yeah, how good is that movie going to be then? Yeah. <laughs> we don't even know we're writing it. Okay. That's not promising. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then another thing that I realized was if you look at how a movie works, right? It's one frame after another frame after another frame. And um, it's actually nothing in between. So it's a frame, nothing, frame, nothing, and so on and so forth. And our minds, string them together into this whole, you know, moving, you know, movie. We aren't seeing frame, emptiness, frame, emptiness, frame, emptiness. We aren't seeing the change from frame to frame. We're just seeing the movie. We're totally caught up in what's going on in the movie, you know, the drama of it. So that's another thing I realized. And I wrote about it in um, the first book of uh, my series, Hmm. Um, let's elaborate a little bit more about the space in between because uh, one great teacher who we loved and I still refer to, of course, Trungpa Rinpoche, Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, and, um, and how he used to talk about the gap mm. in meditation between thoughts and, and so on. And I, I, Mind I th the gap. Yeah, mind the gap, right, that film. But the reality of what you're just saying, the frame to frame to frame to frame, and it's on automatic, it's driven by neurotic tendencies and habitual patterns and belief in thoughts and, and who you think you are, identity and role. The whole, Ramdas is good at talking about just that kind of thing as a... Well, you must have actually appreciated him a little bit because of uh, him being into psychology and, and being able to express it in that way. But, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think at one point, what did you say that caught me? Um, well, first of all, it seems to be a way to, uh, to support our theory, uh, non-theory, Belief in a reality that we are a separate entity. And no matter, even intellectually, you get on the path, you, you intellectually know differently, supposedly, but the belief is so strong that this movie, frame to frame to frame, there, that gap just doesn't exist. It, we don't allow it to be. If you want, can you talk a little bit about how uh, investigating the gap, shall we say? can make mm -hmm. a big difference in terms of uh, turning that movie into uh, a, a, a non-reality. This is not who you are. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I'm going to turn to physics for a second. <laughs> okay. David Bohm uh, was a great physicist who um, talked about the universe as a moving hologram. He called it a hollow movement. And he said it's as though it um, it flashes forth and then, uh, you know, kind of goes back into pre-form, you know, so manifestation, emptiness, manifestation, emptiness. And he, he wasn't Buddhist, um, but he was speaking in, in those terms. Mm. I think that's so interesting. And there is a direct parallel here with the dying process. 
is just happening way faster when we're talking about frame emptiness, frame emptiness. So we've uh, <clears throat> in Tibetan Buddhism, they really delineated all of the stages of moving from uh, incarnation in a body to uh, the various stages of leaving the body and then being in between lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Bardo means Bardo's. literally in between. Mm. And then <clears throat> the Bardo of becoming. So there's this whole process then of landing in another body. So uh, those stages happen instantly in between, you know, when you're finishing one frame and going into emptiness. So it's just a faster version. Mm. Yeah. Uh, So of course we want, we don't want, we're terrified of death and we're terrified of that gap because we, the last thing in the world we want to let go of is our ego because we think we're that. And so we're afraid we'll lose ourselves entirely. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. I think, the essence of our fear of death and our fear of emptiness. Mm, yeah. I, I saw, so uh, Lama has a, a book coming out. It'll be out at the end of the summer, I think, early fall, something like that, of 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not that far after you hear this podcast. Um, and in, in the, what's the name of the book? Let's start there. Deepening, yeah, deepening wisdom, deepening connection, because it's it's the third in the series. Uh, The series is ancient wisdom for our times. And so in this third book, we deepen in the practices um, um, that we can use to become more wise and more compassionate and more feeling more deeply and uh, vastly connected to all. So even so, in you mentioned uh, Bohm in the book, and uh, it's it seems you know he's not a Buddhist, he's not a this or that, but he seems to have a good sense of of uh, reality, shall we say? Huh? And yeah, and you said he said that we can find our way out of this mess we've stumbled into, and it just starts with one person cleaning up their act when it comes to perceiving reality. Which is no more, I mean, I refer, I guess, a lot to Ramdas because of my long term, and he had a great way of words to um, help people really understand the path. But uh, certainly his thing was uh, just nothing can happen for yourself or for anybody else on this planet until you change your heart, change your perspective. That's why at the end of his life, his main thing was getting out of your head and believing the story and the thoughts and into the center of your being, which we have so many different names for it, but spiritual heart is, is a good one. And, and then suddenly that perspective really helps to change a lot in your, one's own life, and then you can see it around you with people. So, uh, yeah, so I was taken by uh, what he, uh, you know, that which you just explained. It was really cool. Um, so, well, I think, too, that uh, um, what Bohm was getting at was um, since we actually are all from the same root and we are all connected, um, you know, and when, we, when I say we're from the same root or the same source, um, that's not a historical fact. You know, because remember, we're appearing and disappearing every nanosecond or whatever. 
Um, so that's a current fact um, that we're connected. So um, I think uh, if we really understand the truth of that, then whenever somebody changes their heart, whenever they wake up to the reality of the fact that there's this one big ocean and we're all waves made of that ocean, um, then compassion comes quite naturally. Um, uh, altruistic motivation comes quite naturally. And uh, by the way, that whole ocean is affected by what you're putting out all the time. And that was something that occurred to me in young adulthood when I was going through a really difficult time being afraid of dying and I was really worried about it and this kind of thing. I thought, I'm putting out a lot of mental pollution right now. <laughs> this is irresponsible of me. <laughs> you know, I've got to figure this out. Mm. So, but, you know, then the reverse is also true. Uh, somebody putting out, you know, really deep, strong love and compassion and care for uh, our fellow waves, then, you know, that's what they're putting out. And people uh, pick up on that. You know, one person kindles another and, um, those waves go out in the ocean and we're all affected by that. Can I also say that uh, it's just like coming from where mo not most of us, all of us have this movie going on at one time or another. And sometimes we don't buy into it as much as other times. And the intention, which is to clean up your act and then be able to be of some use to our fellow humans and not being caught in, in the, um, the belief that we are separate, but we're always going to fall down. I like to point this out, Lama, mm -hmm. because it happens with absolutely everyone. I mean, I've only, mm -hmm. I met a few beings that that's not happening. They're no longer polarized. So it's, you wouldn't even, they're a different species almost, uh, because of the rarity of it. But it's okay, you know. I like Jack Cornfield. He's my favorite thing that he says a lot in his talks. You know, it's okay to be human. It's okay. Yeah. You know, just look at your body and the way things work and the mouth. You put stuff in it. He's got a whole thing. And, <laughs> you know, watch yourself having sex. That's really weird. And I don't think I'll do that. No, no. <laughs> So, but he says, you know, the okayness and the okayness actually, it's what I got actually from Ramdas the very first time I met him. And, and most people, when they first encounter him, his honesty leads one to go, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not a crazy ass piece of junk, which I've been calling myself all along because I see the right. horror of my selfish interest, et cetera, et cetera. So it's okay. So in this, you know, as you, it's uh, spiritual bypass is a very real issue for many, if not most people in what, in, in the most subtle ways it can happen as well, where you're just acting out from a place that you're not quite realizing is uh, still has self-interest manipulation motivation going on. And then you realize it and, you, okay, yeah. it's okay. So, yeah, so, um, you know, a downside to um, turning your lens inward and having it, you know, polishing it and cleaning it off some yeah. can be 
that we see are, you know, where we're not there yet. <laughs> and we can see all sorts of flaws. However, if we're uh, doing this, um, I think in the way uh, the great masters intend, we look upon ourselves with love and compassion, right? We're also one of the waves on the ocean. And that's the way uh, the practice of Tonglin, for example, is constructed, mm. is that we start with ourselves and turn that lens on us and actually um, do a very strong practice of compassion first for ourselves. Yeah, And, and then I, we step it out. Yeah. That's a basis from which we can actually genuinely mm. step it out and out. Yeah. Probably the most difficult thing for people, is, is it not strange to have compassion for themselves, for ourselves, being able to send, that's why Tonglin, well, first tell what Tonglin is, because we, we want to make sure everybody understands what definition of that term. Uh, yeah, so it's a compassion practice, um, because compassion isn't just a passing sentiment, it's a capacity. And um, as with anything else, the more we do it, the more we practice it, the more we increase our capacity for it. Mm. Um, so uh, Tonglin is a Tibetan practice. It means uh, sending and receiving. Yeah. And um, in the practice, you use your breath, breath. and visualization because mm. that's natural to us. But now we point it in this direction where then it's a very embodied, felt sense and uh, envisioned sense of compassion. So it realizes it, mm -hmm. you might say. On its own. Um, another thing, I feel pointing Ram Dass's things out, but they're also relevant right in the moment here. I mean, he said at one point, we have this wonderful Words of Wisdom book, I, I don't think there's a podcast recently after I found this by accidentally opening up the book that I haven't said this because I feel it's the most important thing for people to start, all of us to start realizing. And he said, I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness. Mm. Just if we yeah. could just start there, it's, you know, I love the simplicity of it. And uh, yeah. you do talk about coming from that uh, placed uh, in the in this book, so I I love that foundational practicality and simplicity. You know, is can be very encouraging. Well, and I think uh, as I've uh, talked with um, various Tibetans and heard the Dalai Lama talk about this, and my own Lama, and as I said, many many Tibetans, um, it seems that there's. Um, a cultural programming that we get as Westerners mm, mm -hmm. um, that's very judgmental. Uh, you know, it's like <laughs> that's we a aren't wild okay understatement. as is. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's something I've noticed. And <laughs> it, it doesn't, it, you know, some of it may be human, but I think some of it is um, cultural to mm. us in the West. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is my sense. Yeah. Uh, and I'm speaking in general terms. Of course, there are going to be exceptions on both yeah. sides of that equation. Yeah. Yeah. But as a cultural trend, I, I think that's strongly mm. the case. And that's been my experience with students. So this is a wonderful antidote to that because it's real. You are experiencing something simple, as you point out, and real. And that's the basis from which you can move out 
toward, you know, genuine love and compassion for others. So what happened to me is when I found this quote, and then around the same time, I somehow a picture appeared that I'd had forever, I guess, but didn't notice it in many years. And it was a picture of me when I was maybe, I don't know, four or five years old. They were doing one of those photo shoots they used to do back in the day. You know, you're wearing an outfit. It was so weird. Mm -hmm. And and I was looking off into the distance kind of like, oh, my God, what is this all about? Kind of a sad looking, which I was called a sad kid for my whole beginning part of my life. And uh, I put it up on my altar. Actually, you know what I put it with? Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. I thought, mm. that would be perfect. <laughs> mm. Those of you who may not know, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes because you've got to be connected with Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. Talk about well, practicality. Yeah? So my teacher was his right-hand man no. for 14 years. Oh, at really? Shenzhen. Yeah, oh, Dilgo wow. Kensi Rinpoche. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, I can't. Yeah, we could do a whole. We'll years. have to do a whole other podcast just on Dilgo Kensi and your teacher. Okay, we'll do that. <laughs> That'd be but, great. But can I? Uh, from I don't know where I got this. I might have got it from. I think I got it from the new book actually, and mm. it's uh, and it's all around what I just read that quote of wrapping oneself in the arms of our own kindness. Uh, as an antidote. Uh, so this was someone, and we've talked about him before offline, Mingju Rinpoche, who mm. we've had, I've had on a couple of times. And uh, let me just read, it's very brief. Another Tibetan Lama, Mingju Rinpoche, also couldn't imagine what his Western students were talking about on this subject, which was, the subject was uh, the way in which we judge ourselves, et cetera, et cetera, and the way, how little we think of ourselves. I would go on even beyond that. How we talk to ourselves is awful, awful. And uh, so he was determined to find out what the hell this is all about, that's from me, because he felt that without truly understanding this in his bones... He wouldn't be able to help those students connect with the Dharma. So he decided to cultivate a bad opinion of himself. Just think of this. First of all, this is the one of the first, if not the first, Lama that was experiments were done on him being able to go into certain meditative states. And he would like, in an instant, compassion, boom, he was there. You know, they were using all the fMRI stuff. Uh, Richie Davidson was doing it. So yeah. he, So he's... I mean, just to say, yeah, so he decided to cultivate a bad opinion of himself. We do that without any problem, but this is not something so easy for him. First, he grilled some of his top Western students to find out exactly where the negative opinions came from and how they worked. Then every, I love this story, every day in meditation and in between, he focused on his faults and shortcomings. He told himself that because of these, he was intrinsically worthless. He gave himself all kinds of similar negative messages. One day, he realized that he was feeling little love for himself. He felt rather depressed. Then he thought, yay, now I get it. Now I don't like myself either. How wonderful. This is a different perspective. Okay, this human, I mean, very different. Now that now that's compassion. Needless to say, he resumed his usual practices and came back to his usual joyful state. And anybody uh, who wants to see, because I, I 
video all my podcasts so you can see this extraordinary joyful awareness of this being. I mean, so, and anyhow, so you say, so start with love and affection for yourself. Is that a great, uh, thank you for putting that in there. I love that story. I love the story too. And it was told to me by one of his uh, top students, you know, one of his close in students. And it so struck me that I just had to put it in the book. And by the way, will you read the rest of my book? I'll have to record you for the book on tape. (laughs) That was great. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Um, So going back to the movie of me and getting to the movie of us, first we have to sort of examine what, are the elements that really uh, put us on automatic movie of me land, you know, our studio. So one of the things you talk about in the book is karma and the habits of mind sending us, you know, from one dream to the next, from waking to dream, and having little to say in the matter is what you say. Um, and I love how you described how we, and you know, we just talked about it being in the West, it's definitely different. And we Americans are even more different because we are all about freedom, individual freedom. And uh, it's, it's, and, but here's what the quote is freedom to be led around by the nose, by our habit motivating cravings and anxieties rather than our deepest, truest uh, motivations. Can you talk about that for a minute and just how, <laughs> how that occurs and then, you know, the, the remedies? Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll talk about myself. Uh, I wake up in the morning and um, because of, uh, you know, just the top layer of habit, uh, I'll start with, um, you know, I'm in the habit of snuggling and petting my dogs. Um, if I, you know, really meant it that I, my absolute goal is enlightenment, I would immediately sit up and do the waking up meditation. But first I pet my dogs and then I go, okay, now, you know, (laughs) I've been gratified with this, you know, desire that I want, you know, so I'm led by desire, right. For that. Mm. And, you know, I sit up and I do my, uh, waking up meditation and then I'm, uh, you know, annoyed because uh, my puppy will run off uh, and I don't have a fence right now. So I'm going to have to go stumbling quickly to the door before she pees on the floor. And the other <laughs> dog is hysterical to get out the door. She's just like literally making all these noises because she wants to get out. Yeah. She can't get down the stairs fast enough to get out the door. She's So she's frustrated. And, you know, that I'm kind of annoyed and all this kind of stuff. So this is what's going on. This is, you know, how I start my day. <laughs> and then I stumble out the door with the dogs. And, oh, the puppy's so cute. And so I'm enjoying the cute. You know, and so I'm, I'm led around by the nose by all of this, you know, desire, you know, aversion, all these things. And then I finally sit down to meditate. But there's been this whole drama going on before I even get to the point. Did I mention I drink, you know, my green tea sitting down to sort of coming to... Then I sit down and meditate, okay? And luckily, the first thing you do in Tibetan meditation is the cleansing breaths, the nine rounds of uh, cleansing breaths, which uh, help to sort of clean out some of that static from your nadis, your um, channels, so that you have 
at least a little better chance of the clouds parting and having some moments of really coming from uh, a truer, deeper place. Mm. Does that give you a little bit of idea? But what I haven't talked about, so that's the surface stuff, but there's the layers underneath. So there is the karma that propelled me into this life, you know, deep habits of mind. Yeah, and that's what the, I wanted to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so the deepest one is the habit of seeing myself as separate from all and everything else. So I'm uh, already, you know, just from the point of view of the tip of the wave and forgetting about the ocean and forgetting that I'm also ocean, <laughs> you know, expressing itself in this wave as well as all the other waves. So um, that mistaken um habit of seeing is so deeply ingrained from who knows how many lifetimes if you if you believe that you, your awareness doesn't dissolve when your brain rots um then you know i i think there's recycling when it comes to mm-hmm. souls uh i don't think you know it's just <laughs> once around and then and then you're just what hanging out and you never incarnate again. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So you know who said that, Lama? Exactly what you just said. Jimi Hendrix. What? Jimi Hendrix said, I can't imagine there not being reincarnation. He might not have said exactly that word, but that's exactly what he meant. Because mm-hmm. everybody will be all stuck in one place. What, what are they going to do? Yeah, it, it, it would get more and more crowded somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So, um, yeah, so we go around and around, and the Buddhists say it's like bees in a bottle. You know, sometimes they buzz up, sometimes down, here and there, and around and around, but they, they never get out. And the purpose of, um, you know, practicing the Buddhist path and, and all the great religions is to wake up so that you actually get out of that bottle mm-hmm. and you're free in the yeah. true sense. Yeah. Not free to follow your habits of mind, but truly free yeah. of those yeah. habits of mind. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I keep coming back to this little thing. What you said, you know, I had my cute puppy there. I just wanted to play with my cute puppy, and then I had to have my cup of tea, and and then by then I got to sit practice, sitting practice. Yeah. But there's a way in which I have seen this in many people and in myself that when you are coming at that disciplined part with any kind of I need to do this or I am less than because I played with my puppy first. Mm-hmm. To me, there's a that's a slippery slope. Oh, that's right? judgment. Yeah, and that's a a big Western habit, and I think it's kind of a human habit. Yeah, but I, human. I think it's the judgment thing. You know, it's okay to see when you're off track. By the way, did you know that the original definition of the word sin in ancient Hebrew means missing the mark? <laughs> well, of course, Jewish people are very forgiving. <laughs> Well, and so the point is, um, you know, I'm just missing the mark. I'm not there yet. Uh, And as one lady said in the middle of an argument, she was Buddhist, uh, her husband wasn't. And the husband said, 
well, why are you mad? You're a Buddhist. You can't be mad. And she said, yeah, yeah. I'm a Buddhist, not a Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I realize I'm not a Buddha and I accept that. And I'm not yeah. passing judgment on myself as, right. I don't know, somehow intrinsically bad. <laughs> yeah. Right perspective is yeah. what we need to have with that. Uh, yeah. It, and just jettison the judgment. Yeah. Yeah, not serve, not easy. Anything. We are just doing that. That that's a, the, one of the deepest habitual patterns of humans. Is that so? It's. Uh, I like what you, you also say. Uh, the accurate translation of of dukkha, which is suffering, uh, means something more like insufficiency or lack mm-hmm. of real satisfaction. That's mm-hmm. also interesting to me, huh? Amazing. Yeah. Well, language guides our thought, so I think mm. it's important to really look at that. Yeah, yeah. And for example, uh, the Tibetan word for um, what is normally translated as uh, um, renunciation, and they keep saying you must have renunciation. Well, Nemjung is what they say, uh, and translators then translate it. You must have renunciation in order to truly follow the path. But what they mean is actually more like fed upness. Yeah, not giving up all your clothes, your house, and eating, you know, nothing. Right, yeah, wearing a hair shirt or whatever. No, it's more about, um, you know, it's like, okay, I've been around buzzing in that bottle for long enough to know this is not a great place to hang out. I just am fed up with it. I'm disgusted with it. You know, I want to be free of it. That's what's meant there. And, you know, I've had moments of that deep, kind of um, fed upness that they're talking about. And it truly was transformative for me. Mm. That's what it takes. I mean, I, as a 16, 17 year old, I was just couldn't, I was just depressed all the time and I could not understand why I felt like I was in this confined mental box and, and uh, there was no spaciousness whatsoever. And my famous story is uh, one John Coltrane song later live at a club when I was 16, how I snuck in, uh, you know, I went out of that box for however long and that changed my life actually. Beautiful. Um, you know, one other thing, uh, and we're talking, getting to some anecdotes we're also getting adv- along here. We, we have to go on for a few hours, but we can't. Um, but the um, uh, just the idea of original sin in Christianity, and for that matter, Judaism. Judaism uh, uh, it's not in Judaism. Church. Well, exoteric, that's the way I got it. You were bad, you were a sinner, okay? I don't care what they call it, but I was <laughs> reprimanded all the time, okay? I oh, was yeah, in, reprimanded, yeah, yeah, I understand. It's just the actual... Um, uh, yeah, the philosophical yeah, thing was, might have been different. It was right? St. Augustine, yeah. Yeah, but the reality was quite the same. Uh, and I did a podcast recently with uh, Matthew Fox, actually, and it was uh, he has a new book, and it was all around uh, the idea of original blessing, not sin, yes. and of course, Tibetan's original purity. I think that's mm-hmm. important. It's, it's, the, it's a starting place for... Uh, and uh, the antidote to the movie of me is that we are primarily um, pure beings that have the well, right intention. Yeah, I mean, the way I understood it uh, as a young adult was, well, 
if everything is made of God, then so am I. Yeah. So right. are we all? It, yeah. All the oh, good the way, and all the bad. It, <laughs> so, well, but, uh, you know, the confusion is uh, sort of the the messy clothes, but the the essence is still pure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you throw a bunch of dirt in water, the Tibetans talk about this, um, the water itself is still pure water. You know, you can let the dirt settle to the bottom yeah. and you've still yeah. got pure water. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking yeah. of Matthew Fox, did you mm. know that he and I wrote a book together and did a series of videos? We did this whole long no. um, interfaith dialogue. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. is that available? We um Yeah. Okay, it's everybody who's uh, putting the show notes together here, please make sure <laughs> that that's uh, a link is available there. Also, a link, yeah. of course, for your first couple of books and the new book, which they can pre-order, and and all of that. Um, right. So, the Lotus and the Rose is the name of the book with Matthew with Fox. Matthew. Wow. And uh, we have on our website namchak.org, hmm. we have the, uh, a whole bunch of the video footage. Oh, wonderful. which is probably more fun than reading the book the book is big you know because oh, it yeah. took like 15 hours 16 hours of video footage and just did it verbatim mm, he's wonderful uh oh, yeah ramdas did some stuff with him quite some time ago actually and he's also close to mirabai star who's part of our family i don't mm. know if you know her but um met her yeah um yeah we have to talk about one thing because when we're getting to the anecdote about how to um, move to the reality of the we and not the separate me, uh, I think talking about shamata, shamata, that's probably a better mm-hmm. way to pronounce it, um, it, is something very important. Now, it may be... Um, I may be incorrect saying it's a little more advanced uh, in terms of a practice, but uh, I think the understand not. You think not? I I, I think not. I I think um, you can get to very advanced uh, stages of shamatha, but you can start out with just very basic, simple shamatha. Okay, then please, can you describe that? Uh, so one very simple uh, practice. Uh, let me back up, though, and just mm. say the purpose of shamatha is to help us uh, to slow down our minds a little bit, mm. <laughs> be able to train our minds so that when we set it onto something, whatever it is, it can stay there. Right now, it's a squiggly little puppy. Uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of puppies. <laughs> 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 happens to be on my mind. Um, but it is like that. And, you know, you can't get a puppy to do a downstay for an hour right off the bat and if you try you're going to just have a really frustrated puppy really frustrated owner and everybody's going to hate training sessions so not advisable Mm. um but the purpose of shamatha is to get your mind to be able to settle and do a downstay and focus on a particular thing so that whatever practice you do in the future you can just stay with it and by the way it's great in life you know wouldn't we all love to be able to have our minds just focus and settle on something in a very relaxed and open way. Not like I must concentrate, you know, not yeah. like that. And actually yeah. you won't succeed. You'll just be fighting yeah. with yourself. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, one very, very simple sort of beginning uh, shamatha practice is to use your mind, uh, joining your mind with your breath. And so if you imagine that your mind, the seat of your mind is here, and this is just the thinking machine that runs your body. Um, but, you know, whenever we say, um, I believe such and such, we don't say I, I am Tsomo. <laughs> we say, I am Tsomo, right? So if you imagine that this is sort of the where your mind is generally the spiritual located. heart, yeah. So it's yeah. loving awareness is what Ram Das used to call yeah, it. Yeah, so your awareness, you're, you're trying to train your mind, your awareness. Mm -hmm. And so... You can close your eyes for this. Yeah, why don't you do a little thing here? That would be great sure. for us to have, actually. Okay. So on the exhale, you send your mind and breath, they're joined together. You send them out together, just like I'm pointing with my finger, out and down, and rest for a moment. And then on the inhale, you bring your breath, and your mind back in. And then send it out again. Leaving it sitting out there. And in again. Sending it out again. And as it's sitting out there, utter stillness, savoring that stillness. And drawing it in. And one more time. Very gently out, resting, savoring, focusing only on this, and then drawing in again. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And when the translation of this uh, uh, shamatha in your book is tranquil abiding meditation, or calm abiding, I've heard it called as well. And yeah. uh, that tells the story of changing your story. It's one uh, extraordinarily important condition is to be able to create a spaciousness that belies this absolute tendency we have to just follow off every thought, emotion, belief, all of it. There has to be a place. That's why this, to me, it's the first antidote, is a place where you can actually, as you do the out-breath, and you just rest in that for a minute, you notice, okay, we're okay right here. We're just okay. Yeah. yeah, this is just this right here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. 
Um, yeah, and I often, you know, when I'm doing that, I often think of the words, be here now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a life-changing book for me. Yes, many of us. I actually was fortunate, of course, to meet him before, while he was actually writing the book. I had no idea about it, but it was all the same. All those talks at the time, they were all exactly around. You know, And you know how that happened. I mean, I can't remember. He's told it in different places, but I, I said, what were you doing? He was with this, this young man, Bhagavandas was his name, is his name. And they were traveling uh, through India. Uh, he kind of, he had this beautiful little bus, you know, Volkswagen bus, or no, it was a Land Rover. And uh, Bhagwan Das said, all right, I'm going to, because he had no idea, Ram Das, about anything. I'm, he said, I'm a Buddhist. I don't want anything to do with that crazy Hindu gods and goddesses. And Bhagwan Das said, well, let me just introduce you to my guru. And they went off to do that. And on the way, Ram Das has a lot of stories. He was regaling Bhagavan does all those acid trips with Leary and, you know, flying a plane on acid. I mean, it was nuts. Uh, in fact, uh, Bhagavan Das at one point, everyone thinks this came from a be here now, the aphorism, from a spiritually, uh, a moment of, of Sartori. No. Bhagavan Das said to Ram Das when he was regaling him with these stories, for God's sake, would you just be here now? Shut up. That's how it happened. It wasn't. Oh, my a, God. Yeah. So I always <laughs> love awesome. that. That takes the, you know, everyone's, wow, he must have spent 20 years coming up with that one. No, he was being <laughs> <laughs> rudely admonished, actually. So that happened. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, isn't that great? Yeah. I'm going to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're at. I could go on, and let's do this again, Lama, because there's so much uh, uh, here to unpack. Uh, but uh, everybody, uh, don't forget, don't forget, you will have all of these links to all of these amazing different, uh, and a link to your teacher would be great as well, so you have to sort of write in and let it, or it must be on your site, right? A link to my teacher? And a link to be able to people to see and maybe read his teachings. Oh, well, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, at Namchak, we are um, slowly but surely translating. Remember? Oh, you are. Yeah, he does speak English. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, we have a few, we've caught him on video a few times. Uh, not too much at this point. He's mostly teaching like very advanced students and his nuns. Right now he's in India oh, yeah. and spends a lot of time oh. there. He has a large monastery with nuns. That's uh, and they're, yeah, I, I think um, they must be among the most well-educated and well-practiced nuns in the world mm. in um, the Tibetan tradition. Really amazing. Oh, yeah. They're just to be able to connect with just what, what, uh, the organization is doing in him in particular, and you, of course. So yeah, all and of then that his will be brother, there. yeah, and his brother is uh, in Montana, and he doesn't speak English either. This is a family <laughs> lineage, apparently. Hmm. And but um, he's a wonderful teacher, and he does teach shamatha, and uh -huh. you know, like really the the proper way, uh, the pro proper Tibetan way, 
shamatha leading to vipassana. Mm. And um, he's quite accomplished at it and has done many long retreats mm. and learned it from Pena Rinpoche, who was, uh, was the head of the whole Nimapa lineage before Dingo Chense Rinpoche was, mm-hmm. or no, sorry, after. Um, and, you know, just a uh, truly uh, wonderful, gifted teacher as well. So Namchak Ken Rinpoche, it's easier to, you know, get recordings of his teachings and you can sign up. He's actually starting a new batch of people on beginning Shamatha. Oh, so, yeah, wonderful. if you come to our website, you can uh, find out the calendar of our events, uh, you know, write to us and say, yeah. I want to study Shamatha with uh, this Ken Rinpoche and we can hook you up. Okay, great. And yeah, and then look for the new uh, book that's coming out or the previous ones in the series. The series is Ancient Wisdom for Our Times. And this third book in the series is Deepening Wisdom, Deepening Connection. Mm -hmm. Which is, in one word, the final antidote to the me-me-ness that we are living day to day is that connection and self-compassion and and enabling that compassion to reach out to whoever we happen to meet up with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and these practices I I talk about in the book, you know, that's how you do it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you're not going to just snap your fingers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, decades, I... I have that realization. Yeah, yeah. There's (laughs) a reason for it. Um, Thank you so much for being here, Lama Tsomo. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, again, everybody, you'll be able to get linked up at the on the show notes page on Be Here Now Network. So go network. Go to beherenownetwork.com/slash/mindrolling, and you will be able to be connected with uh, many of the um, books and personalities that we've been talking about like we will put in Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche as, as a I didn't know that your teacher was that that's uh, again that's a whole other podcast as I said so we'll <laughs> have to we'll have to do that so thank you again for being here everybody we'll see you next week me.